All right, we are here uh, for the first official episode of What Can We Do from the uh, Liberty Alliance Network. I'm Haley Heathman. Today, joining me, we have the beautiful, talented, wonderful, brave, courageous Sibel Edmonds. Sibel Edmonds. Um, well, I would say she needs no introduction, but actually, I think she does. I think she needs a, a, a big introduction. And um, I'm going to let her get to that uh, in just a second. But um, I've actually got here with me my copy of her book, Classified Woman. I was just looking at it right now um, that I got it because uh, I got the I paid extra for the signed autographed version. So uh, it says May 8th, 2012 to Haley. Grateful for all of your support. So um, we're going to talk about what Sabelle's up to right now. But I think before we do that, I want to touch on briefly um, where she's been in the past and um, why uh, she's a force to be reckoned with. So Sabelle, why don't you um, give us as, mu- as best you can the Reader's Digest version of um, your history and experience? Oh, that will be long. First, thank you for inviting me. I, I believe this is your first podcast interview, so actually it's very special. And thank you for giving that honor to me. Thank you very much. Thank you for and, gracing uh, me with your presence. <laughs> thank you. Well, um, I'm going to try not to make this uh, really long. However, my background is very complex in terms of uh, the countries I grew up in. I have originally, I'm from Turkey, Istanbul, used to be Constantinople, but because of my father's job, uh, he was a surgeon, he was a doctor. Uh, I lived in also in Iran during both uh, the monarchy time, Shah's regime, but also we were there when the revolution took place and it turned into the Islamic regime. And... uh, So I have seen wars. I have seen uh, what people refer to, people misusing religion, Islamic fascism. I have seen monarchy. And as soon as we were able to get out of Iran, and this would be 1982, end of 1981, we came back to Turkey where uh, we faced the military coup. We had a coup in place. We had curfew, lockdowns. all the shenanigans, okay? And I think today many Americans can resonate better when people talk about coups and lockdowns and curfews than they did in the past and what it feels like due to this whole COVID shenanigan. We also had a brief period in in the Soviet Union, in Azerbaijan. My father's father was from there. About one and a half years we lived there. So I was also (laughs) exposed to the communism and what it feels like to be in the Soviet Union. And this would be 1975 to 1977. So that's my background. I came to the United States in 1988 after my high school. I attended universities here. I went to George Washington University. I have uh, several degrees from there forensic psychology, criminal psychology, criminal justice. And later I got my master's degree in public policy. Uh, We had our own, my husband and I, we've been married for 30 years. It's going to be 30 years this coming October. And we had our own business. And uh, right around first or second day of 9-11, post 9-11, 
within the first week, I was contacted by the FBI to perform uh, both linguistic and uh, work as an analyst with them as a contractor. I never planned to work for government whatsoever because where I grew up, my family members, we had always this position of that's one place you don't want to ever go to and work for governments, you know, red tapes, bureaucracy, my favorite novel, Kafka. And that's how we viewed governments back there because we had really horrible experience with, with, with governments, you know, whether in Iran, whether in Turkey. But it, it felt like a patriotic duty to, to accept this um, request from the FBI because they had their deputy director of the FBI calling me and saying, we accommodate any time, any time frame you want to work for us because we need your services. I speak fluently Turkish, Farsi, which is the language in Iran. Turkish is the, you know, Turkey language, official language in Turkey, my mother tongue. But also I speak Azerbaijani because of my father's background and having lived there in Azerbaijan. And also in Afghanistan, they speak Dari. Dari is a variation of Farsi, which is spoken in Iran. So I could perform for them analysis and uh, simultaneous translations, document translations, etc., in four languages uh, from different areas of investigations, whether counterintelligence or counterterrorism. So you can see why they want it. It's like, you know, we need, your country needs you, Miss Edmonds. Well, of course I didn't say no. And in addition to the fact that it was, it felt like having a patriotic duty at the time to do this, I didn't have such a grim view of the government here in the United States. I mean, of course, because of my father's political activism and having lived overseas, I had been exposed to some of the foreign policies and implementations and operations of the United States and not good, many of them. You know, uh, for example, the coup, the military coup in Turkey was implemented by the United States and NATO. Also supporting the Shah's regime uh, that happened to torture my father, doctor, for because of the books he had, was done again when it was fully supported by the United States and the CIA. Uh, however, being in the United States, I had this naive notion that actually, based on what I was seeing per media, etc., that things were actually incredibly good in the United States, especially when we put it in relative terms, because everything in this life, in this world is relative. You can't have good if you don't know what bad is, right? You can't have beauty if you don't have ugly. So everything is in relative terms. And, and I have also traveled extensively throughout Europe. I have been in 48 countries. I have lived in Australia. I have lived in New Zealand. Uh, I lived in Vietnam for one and a half years. Of all the bunch, all the countries that I have lived in, I have traveled through it was the best, okay, in the relative terms, uh, what we had 
in the United States, this great thing called the Constitution of the United States of America, and those are our rights guaranteed under the Constitution, the emphasis on things like, like freedom of speech, it is maybe very easy to take it for granted for Americans who haven't lived elsewhere because they haven't seen or experienced the suffocation that comes from being under censorship constantly, which we were, you know, I was in high school. I wanted to, or actually I did, wrote a pretty long composition to enter this competition, inter-high school's com competition on the freedom of the press, journalism. And they viewed it as defamation on Turkey when I was in Turkey. And they said, if you submit this, you're going to be arrested. You're going to be jailed. Your family may be jailed. You can't write about freedom of the press and give examples of how journalists disappear in this country. They go to jail for years at a time and they get tortured, right? Uh, so having those experiences the fact that I could express my opinion when I came here at the age 18, I can write about anything as an essay, you know, uh, in for my term papers in colleges. Those were brand new experiences for me. And I fell in love. I'm like, wow, all the things we miss in all these other countries, right? So well, yeah, we were the the shining, the shining beacon uh, of liberty. And I think, I think, um, you know, especially when you come from the background that, that you do, um, that, um, you know, with personal experience on what real oppression looks like, um, you know, yeah, it looks like America's, uh, pretty great by comparison. Um, and, and then would you say, it was, it was. let's put it in the past tense it's yeah. still for comparison, but we have lost so many of those edges. Please go ahead. I was going to say, would you say, do you think nine 11 was a turning point or do you think, um, Things were mm, still maybe pretty bad, but um, maybe because we the internet wasn't as pervasive, we just didn't know about it before. Or do you think that it accelerated after 9-11? It accelerated immensely with 9-11, post-9-11, immensely. Uh, was it a perfect system? Of course not. Because delving into history and public policy, you know, even for during the Cold War, we know that there were certain things being implemented under the guise of, well, we are fighting communism. Of course, I was aware of the fact that we had the McCarthy era here in this country, you know, uh, when, when we had the witch hunt uh, through McCarthyism, and we had the Japanese internment during this whole World War II, and these were American Japanese and these camps that we set up. So at, not, at no point I was under this, I would say, severe illusion that things were perfect. But as I said, relatively speaking, as perfect as anywhere else in the world. And all of this pre 9-11. So I went and I started working uh, in FBI's Washington field office and headquarters. And because having, and I was granted the top secret clearance, it was the highest level of clearance you could obtain. Because they looked at my background, etc. They granted and then the projects 
operations investigations that I was part of exceeded any other analyst and language specialist within the bureau simply due to the fact that I was able to perform in three, four languages. Okay. And because of my background education history, I could perform certain tasks within the analysis realm of analysis than anybody else they had at the time in the bureau. And because of that, I was, I was, <laughs> I mean, all these different field offices from Chicago, you know, from Illinois, from, from New Jersey, from California, agents and their supervisors, they were sending it to Washington, D.C. so that I would get those, they were called very important, highly pertinent, and, and they need to be timely, both translated and analyzed. So all these things were pouring in. And since I, I was doing all these different investigations from different field offices, but also within the FBI, there are three different categories of investigations and operations, counterintelligence, counterterrorism, but also the white collar crimes, okay, financial crimes. And, and I was, I was doing, I was part of investigations that included all three, not only counterterrorism, but also counterintelligence. So when you're in that position, you start seeing overlaps and, and, and you start seeing pattern because if you have a linguist or an analyst that is working only counterterrorism and let's say one country, target country, let's say Iran or Turkey or Saudi Arabia, you're only exposed to all the material documents, phone records, etc., of that particular minute field. But when you are doing it multiple countries and multiple three categories of investigations, you're able to see patterns that is not possible to see otherwise. Whether it's within counterintelligence, between counterintelligence and counterterrorism, to make the long story short, because I have been asked this so many times, people saying, well, you were there for six months, okay, full-time six months, but how could you have known all this stuff? Well, I had, for example, for one investigation from Chicago field office, I was given material that dated back from 1997 all the way till 9-11, four years worth of recording conversations, documents, interviews, etc. Okay? Because they had not either neither translated nor analyzed those materials. And because of 9-11, they wanted to know had they missed any pertinent information, right? So that got me exposed to immense level of cover-up and facts that even to this date, nobody else really has become aware of because of classifications, because of later gag orders on me. Okay, state secrets privilege. And some of these had nothing to do with foreign elements doing things either overseas or in our country. A lot of these that were classified had to do with 
our own officials, okay, Americans, whether they are representatives in, in, in Congress, U.S. Congress, whether they had very high-level positions within the State Department, etc., okay, it involved Americans engaged, of American officials engaged in some highest-level criminal operations against the Americans' interest, okay? And what do you do when you come across such evidence, okay, all documented, and you see that nothing is being done? In fact, it's being covered up, right? If you are in a company business, a private business, and you come across things like that, Naturally, you're going to go to your police or you're going to go to the FBI to report it because it's criminal operations that cost lives and it's okay and needs to be reported. But what in the world would you do if you are within the police department or some entity such as FBI? Who do you go to, right? So it was this thing saying, what am I going to do? I'm obligated as a citizen, someone who has taken the oath of citizenship to do something. I have to report this. Well, I did my <laughs> homework and I found out that in these circumstances, you go and you report it, you're obligated because if you don't report to the appropriate channels, you're participating in that cover-up. You're obligated to report this to two different or three different entities. One is the appropriate committees within the United States Congress, House and Senate. In this case, those would be counterintelligence and counterterrorism, right? You also go to court, okay? And, and the other one is within the agency, you go to your <laughs> watchdog within the agency. I'm laughing because it's, it's, it's a mockery. It's putting the foxes in the charge of the hen house in this case, which is Inspector General's Office for the Justice Department and the FBI. So it's been, it, it's, it's been several years since I've read your book, but I just remember one of my big takeaways from that whole episode was, you know, like, uh, like it really drilled home that all the official channels are bullshit. And absolutely. It, They're illusionary. You're it, absolutely right. And it was really instructive. When you know that, then when you see the, the the people who came behind you, you know, Edward Snowden and and Assange and, you know, all the various other whistleblowers that you've, of course, given voice to, um, you, you know, and, and you hear everybody, oh, you know, they, they need to go through the official channels and you just laugh. Because when you know what the official channels actually are, you're exactly right. It's it's a mockery, and it just shows how, well, how how uh, hoodwinked we are. I didn't know at a time, and that was the issue. And here, I, I I'm a person, or I was a person who hold a master's degree 4.0 on public policy, as you said. In theory, when you do this, because I didn't blow the whistle in public, going to some newspaper, leaking documents. I went through the so-called official channels, and I believed that those official channels worked because, hey, I was educated. I went through all these academia, all these top uh, universities, and this is how it's supposed to work. Well, that was a wake-up call for me. And it was a wake-up call that came with severe cost because the moment I went to the Senate 
and the House Judiciary Committee, I they started retaliations. They they stormed my house with half a dozen of agents, confiscated my computer, my husband's computer. They dragged me to a lie detector machine for hours, interrogated me, which I passed. But regardless, you just can't imagine the stress, the psychological warfare that was launched suddenly. And you are standing there saying, but I didn't do anything. First of all, I didn't even give classified information to unauthorized people without clearance. I played by the book, right? They start start treating you like the criminal versus the people that you're trying to expose. Absolutely. So that ended up being a legal battle because I pursued all the channels. I went to courts. I had to go and obtain attorneys. The bills for these attorneys trying to fight this whole case in court was over $280,000, less than a year, okay, going and getting loan for this because even when you're going trying to find attorneys, you go to these top legal offices, attorneys' offices, and they say, even if you give me $1 million, right now I will not represent you against the Justice Department, FBI. In this case, it became the State Department and the CIA as well, because we don't want to touch those entities. So even if you're a billionaire, you can't get attorneys. They turn you down because nobody wants to deal with them because they're going to come under retaliation. It is it is the reality of, of how things are, especially with the suffocation that was implemented, to, you know, brought upon all of us with 9-11 under the guise of we are, this is, we are fighting horrible terrorists and we have to give away all our civil liberties, all the rights we had. And then again, I'm trying to sum it up. As soon as I started going to courts and, and these things were happening in late 2002, they invoked state secrets privilege and related gag orders on me. And it was done by the attorney general himself with a press conference. And nobody had heard of a state secrets privilege back then. They're like, what the heck is a state secrets privilege? Because it had not been used commonly. And it is one of the most arcane anti-U.S. constitution uh, based on common law executive order that we have that nobody had heard of. Even attorneys, most of them, many of them had not heard of it. And then they invoked it again and again. And I became known as the most classified and most gagged person in the U.S. history. No other whistleblower had ever received that. Nobody had ever received that. And the court, of course, became the kangaroo courts. My case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court justices, they said, since the government is telling us that this case is the most secret, classified case, you, the judges of the Supreme Court, you don't have clearance high enough to hear it. And they said, therefore, we decline to hear the case, not because she doesn't have a case. We decline to hear this case, bring it, you know, into our court, Supreme Court, because the government says it's too sensitive. That's incredible. And they don't have to prove. The government doesn't have to go about proving that they are not lying about it. So that was, let's call it my awakening period. And since that, and this would be 2002, 
I have been I have been a full time activist because later I set up my own national security whistleblowers coalitions because again there were so many window dressing NGOs posing as whistleblower NGOs helping whistleblowers all of them were infiltrated all of them were co opted you know if you go and look at their fundings government accountability project GAP. Pogo project on government oversight. They advertise themselves as NGOs representing the best interest and defending uh, whistleblowers, right? Government whistleblowers. When you go and look at their fundings in millions of dollars, each one of these NGOs, you see that you see the same five, ten people: George Soros, Rockefellers, Carnegies, Hewlett Packards, Bill Gates. Mm. The, 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 the deep state billionaires, basically, that we all now know about today, but at the time, nobody gave a hood about it. I was screaming about it, and they were looking at me, most people saying, ah, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. It can't be that bad. But nowadays, unfortunately, and maybe slightly fortunately, more people have are awake and they know what these people and these organizations are all about. But in 2002, 2003, it was so hard to garner any public support because as with today and what we see with COVID, we had majority of our nation, over 90%, I would say it with confidence, they were bought in to only the mainstream media and the government. There is terrorism going on. Our lives are all threatened. The terrorists are all out there trying to kill us all in the U.S. Nobody gives a hood about what this government whistleblower or that government whistleblower says. Plus, these whistleblowers who are suffering and their constitutionally guaranteed rights being removed, right? They are anomalies. That doesn't affect our lives. It's all about a handful of some stupid loudmouth whistleblowers. That was the view. I remember, in fact, there are some videos of me pleading with, with the Americans saying, look, don't think these as something that is affecting us, the whistleblowers. They are collectively, all of your rights are being taken away. They are taking away your constitutional rights. They have nullified First Amendment, Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment. Look around. When you're looking at NSA's spying of everyone, illegal warrantless wiretap of all Americans, not one, not one million, all of us, that is in violation of our Fourth Amendment, all our Fourth Amendments. When you're being pat down and treated as every one of us Americans as suspects, removing shoes and submitting to these x-ray machines, right? Against our constitutional rights, that's all of us. Our first speech, whether it's the government whistleblowers or the media or the whistleblowers, all these are about all our First Amendment rights, but to no avail because people were not receptive. Fear of terrorism, these boogeymen, whether they are Al-Qaeda or ISIS, overrode everything else, all rational sense, our, our, our possessiveness of our rights, right? And when our founders put these rights in place, they made it absolute, the First Amendment rights, Fourth Amendment rights, Second Amendment rights, these were absolute. 
They didn't. Well, not not according to Joe Biden. I think didn't he just say that <laughs> none of our rights yeah. are absolute now? So you know, apparently, and, and I, people have gotten used to it because <laughs> they didn't make provisions saying, "Well, we the Americans are entitled of our to have our First Amendment rights, except for the situation of war, war on terror, right. terrorism." No, they didn't make those exceptions. Deadly pandemic. You know. No, exactly. They. Well, are and have been meant as absolute rights. In fact, they refer to them as our God-given rights to pursue our happiness and to pursue our happiness and to pursue our rights to say, write anything, okay? Because that is our God-given human rights, the rights for to express ourselves in however it is that we are expressing ourselves. And, and some the, people and even the, say, sorry, to, some people even say that, you know, that's the better way to put it is God-given rights. Because even if you express it as a constitutional right, you know, it, that, you know, these are rights that should exist, whether there's a constitution or not. Absolutely. They, they're, they're natural, inherent rights. So, well, I I wanted to, to start off by you giving your background, because I, I want people to know that you're a force to be reckoned with. And, you know, I, like I said, I, well, at the beginning, you know, I, I mentioned, okay, I've got your book, it's dated 2012. And I'd obviously, you'd been on my radar, I think for a year or two before that, that was kind of my political awakening was like in 2010 or so. And so, um, I followed you through your, your various projects since then, your Boiling Frogs post and Newsbud and everything. And then in recent years, I think I'd, I'd, I'd lost, uh, you fell off my radar a little bit. <laughs> and um, the last I knew you were in Turkey and I was following you while you were tweeting about the Jamal Khashoggi case. Yes. Um, but I think Twitter was shadow banning you. And then again, I kind of, you kind of fell off my radar because I wasn't seeing info about you. And so then when I, I, I I'm in Florida and um, uh, obviously COVID hit. And then at some point la- late last year or at some point or no, early this year, um, you know, we're trying to figure out, well, what's, what, what can we do? This is horrible. You know, all this, these lockdowns and this tyranny and, you know, yada, yada, yada. And somebody, um, had, had, uh, shared some information that, that the new organization that you started up, uh, and, and I, then I discovered you're in Naples, Florida. And I was like, what? Cause I used to live in Fort Myers, Florida up until October of last year. And I was so disappointed because as I was like, Wait, she was in Naples, Florida this whole time, and I could have been like best buds with Sabelle Edmonds, and then now I'm in Central Florida, so we kind of missed each other. But I, I looked into the organization that you've started, um, uh, FUAMI, Florida Unites Against Mandated Insanity. And, um, you know, as things have progressed and just keep getting worse and worse and worse, I'm like, okay, I need to be part of that because I figured what I tell people is, well, anything with Sabelle Edmonds' name on it is it, it, it's something you have to take seriously. It's, you know, she's a force to be reckoned with. She's got contacts, she knows people and anything she puts her mind to, she has a way of accomplishing it. So I'm like, yes, that's, you know, as opposed to some of these, you know, all these other little grassroots movements, which is great, which is part of what I'm trying to do is highlight all these things. But Sabelle Edmonds, it's got that Sabelle Edmonds seal of approval on it. So I'm like, well, I want to be part of that. Well, uh, thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm, I don't know what to say. I'm, I'm honored. Uh, the, I was supposed to be retired. In uh, late 2017, 
I, uh, because of, at the time, my husband had some health issues, but at the time, they were not as serious as it is today. And I will get to that. And my daughter had turned 10 and I decided, okay, you know, I have been doing this for 15, 16 years. And, uh, I, and we have traveled a lot and we have resided in different countries for a period of times, but I wanted to basically have a uh, expat life experience, mainly also for my daughter and uh, the importance of being multilingual. I grew up that way. So I have been trying to instill it, you know, when it comes to my daughter I said, okay, we'll take a few years and go and spend maybe a year or two in Greece and Turkey. And then afterwards, we were planning to go to Vietnam and, uh, and also Taiwan for my daughter to learn Mandarin, etc. So we packed and we left and we went, uh, we were in Turkey and Greece. I was basically, other than a couple of cases, because we didn't have any real journalists covering it in Turkey and some significant things happened there. One of them, as you mentioned, Jamal Khashoggi's supposed murder case. And I was on the ground, the only foreign journalist on the ground that was investigating it real time. And also we had the head of this White Helmets organization, um, James Lamossurier, and he was, uh, he committed suicide, which was not a suicide. Again, I happened to be there. But other than those two cases, I pretty much was uh, putting together my own uh, international travel and food um, channel on YouTube. And I went about gathering camera people, a crew to combine, cover, to cover food culture and travel combined with politics, local politics in different countries, Lebanon, Greece, you know, Turkey, uh, Spain. And then this whole thing with COVID <laughs> took place. And we went on a lockdown in Turkey. It was 24 by 7 with military, you know. I mean, you couldn't even step outside your door. And right at the same time, my husband was uh, finally diagnosed with the rare progressive type of ALS. Some people know it as uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. And it was a rapid progressing, so he quickly became disabled. Anyhow, we had to, uh, we have, we had to scramble and get ourselves back here to the United States to go with through with medical stuff for him and we chose Florida thank god we did yeah I was gonna oh, ask how, how you wound up in Naples and thank goodness you left Oregon that's for sure yes because <laughs> number one there are so many more they have so many more facilities and medical services for uh, ALS related um, uh, patients here in Florida than anywhere else I've seen. And, and also because of all the COVID, uh, related restrictions, we chose Florida. We settled here. Now we are residents. So proud to be residents here in Florida. And, uh, as you just said, I, uh, still being is dealing with ALS and my husband has very little time left. Um, and my daughter is only 12 years old. I started homeschooling my daughter. I mean, I'm not going to send my child with masks and all that gunk and the filth uh, that comes with it. Petri mask. <laughs> Far more threatening than anything else that I see around. So I started homeschooling her. Meanwhile, not seeing much activism, I started researching, trying to find 
uh, grassroots or NGOs or networks of activists that I could go support, not to establish anything myself because, <laughs> oh, Haley, I was so <laughs> done with that. And that's what I kept telling my husband. I am so done starting because it, it's time consuming, uh, yeah. it's energy consuming. And I didn't have that time. I don't have that time. My life, of all the crises I have faced in my life, and I have faced many, uh, being refugees coming back from Iran, leaving all our possessions, home and cars, basically escaping, wars, coups, you know, whistleblowing, gag orders, the most excruciatingly crises mode life's period has been this for me. My husband, the 30 years of marriage we've had, my daughter being 12, this whole COVID thing. So I kept looking and looking and looking, trying to go to some of the local meetings I would hear about. People will tell me I wanted to support, support and say, okay, I'll do my part. You want me to do this? I will write. I will do podcasts. I'll contribute because we must fight. We must do something look around you, this is insane. This is insane. And the compliance by, I would say, 80, 90% of people, that's even more insane. I couldn't believe, I can't believe, I still can't believe how in the world they would get all these people in our country to well, buy into this. Worldwide, worldwide. That's what worldwide, I, I mean. Worldwide, but especially here, because... Yeah. If you look at all these other countries, whether Turkey, whether even in Europe, they are so used to government-dictated mandates and rules, not, not only on diseases, Haley. I mean, you go to EU nations, everything is mandated and ruled. I mean, you become almost robotized, you know, like a robot walking around. This is how you say it. This is how you don't have this flexibility that we always have prided ourselves with in the United States. Why people want to come from all these countries? You open the gates and say you can go either to EU countries or to the United States. You will see half of EU, especially Eastern Europeans, they want to come here. Why? Relatively speaking, far less red tapes. Relatively speaking, more freedom. And because of that, more opportunities. Uh, especially within the financial realm, meaning if you're willing to work hard, right, and you are do what it takes, you can make it, and you can make it good. You don't have this type of freedom nowhere, even in Australia, even in New Zealand, which I lived there for six months. It's not anything that comes close to what we have or what we have had in our nation. So it was even more shocking, but still... As you see, we have pockets of resistance, but going to these meetings, trying, trying to get them do something. I, I did that for two months, three months, okay? And I didn't get anywhere. I would go to some meetings and they would suddenly change topic from COVID to elections and, and how, you know, what happened, which is horrible, which was complete stolen and, and I will totally stand by that. It even brought me out to go and vote. I haven't voted here for like 10 years, 12 years. And I went out and voted. Or they would bring some, you know, like everything but the kitchen sink. I'm like, look, during my whistleblowing activism in early 2000s, because we had a Republican administration, George W. Bush, even though it was not because of they had a great, you know, intentions, there were so many organizations on the left, 
from moveon.orgs to all the other Soros bastard children, mini, mini organizations, mini Soros NGOs around, including the ACLU. They all came and they tried to take all these government whistleblowers under their wings, not because they were really worried about our civil liberties. They wanted to use us, to utilize us against a Republican administration. Not that, you know, that was a horrible administration, whether Republican or Democrats, when you're rotten, you're rotten, you know. And But I got to see firsthand how organized, methodical these people are you know, Soros and related left organizations. I saw how even though there were so many of them, they had the in the background, the strategy, calculative, and they could unite all these different pockets in a second, you know, with a click of a button here or, or, or a, your key on the computer because everything is structured and well-organized, well-thought-out. Well, it, I got to see the opposite saying, okay, whether it's the elections issue, whether it's this COVID issues, whether it's the Second Amendment, you can't get more divided than what we see here with people we call as libertarians, conservatives. I'm not going to even attach Republicans because I think both parties are disgusting. And when I say libertarian, I usually emphasize libertarian with lowercase l, not the libertarian party, okay? Libertarian-minded people, which is closest, as close as you can get to pure conservatism of, of our constitutional rights, free markets, individual liberties, none. And they have bickerings. They're divided. I, I, I wanted to go to one meeting here in Fort Myers area, North Naples, and I, I was excluded. They said I couldn't come in because I'm a woman. And this was done by somebody from Proud Boys on COVID-related stuff, right? But I was not allowed to enter because I'm female. I'm like, what in the world? That's bizarre. It is bizarre, right? And later I came to understand some of the dynamics because some of these pockets of what we see as resistance unfortunately, are infiltrated, they are co-opted by the, um, by the government. Well, and, and, so, and I know that um, obviously, you know, you left the whistleblowing world a long time ago, and obviously you only were at the FBI for a, a brief amount of time, but you still have contacts um, in that world. So you, you are still privy to certain information that, um, that most of us aren't. Is, would you say that's true? Absolutely, because my organization publicly has and has had 150 plus government whistleblowers, many of them high level with DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency, NSA, FBI, you know, Pentagon, even drug enforcement agencies, etc. These are government. But I also have people who wanted to blow the whistle and they joined us, but they never became publicly known because to keep their retirements or based on what they saw, what happened to us, seeing that it doesn't do any good, they, they didn't end up fully blowing the whistle, if you want to call it as such. Uh, so I, with these 
existing contacts, well, these people, they have contacts also who are still within some of these agencies. So usually, usually, not always, um, two to three lines or, or calls away from getting an answer on someone because I would be calling, let's say, my retired source who was a government whistleblower within the FBI. And I, he says, okay, I will look into it. He calls someone he knows in the agency that he trusts and says, do you know such and such, right? Then he gets back with me and says, okay, this person is definitely an undercover or an asset, okay, infiltrator. Or it's not part of our agency, but this this person is. So it's it's not difficult to establish because you don't want to go and accuse anybody saying, oh yeah, you're an infiltrator, you're an asset, without having your evidence, without having your facts. You just don't go willy-nilly accuse people. I, I saw a great example of this while I was in Oregon. I lived in Bend, Oregon for eight years. We left Washington, D.C. area in 2012. And... Uh, I was documenting, you know, going to Utah, Idaho. I was in Oregon in this Malhor case in Oregon where we had the ranchers with the dispute on the water rights uh, in Oregon. And then they were supported by the militia. And then, of course, we had this whole shootings and people were arrested. Lavoy Finnegan was killed, a rancher from Utah. He was Mormon. So I went to Utah. I was in his funeral. I went to these meetings as a journalist, because of it was wrongful death of Lavoy Finnegan. And uh, okay, I'm going to pause here so that this sure. thing goes. Go. As I was interviewing people, documenting the cases, I got to see how infiltrated these groups were. You know, the the different pockets of resistance or militia, you know, some of them, they, they have been depicted rightfully so as cartoonish caricatures, characters, you know, or SS people, etc. I'm not referring to them. They are comical. They're just like, okay, let's put them aside. But then you have legitimate resistance people that are maybe militia or even not militia, good solid groups, all of them infiltrated. And by the savviest infiltrators that I have ever seen, it, it, it is amazing, you know, whether they are posing as a constitutional attorney, expert <laughs> in constitution, whether they are uh, alternative media figures, let's say podcast producers with huge following. It, that, that was itself a wake-up call to see how infiltrated these things were in 2016. Now, fast forward, as, I'm go, as I was going to some of these conferences, these little local meetings, etc., I got to see some of the same characters, okay, that way back when I had established as agents for the other side. So between these and the fact that they are so divided, the fact that some of them are well-intentioned, but they don't have a sense of disciplined strategy you strategize then you plan according to the best strategy then you go through the logistics of implementation whether you're doing a business whether you're doing activism you don't run around like headless chicken and say this is wrong this is wrong mask oh that's not gonna get 
us, that's not going to get anyone anywhere in the world anywhere. You have to be smart. You have to strategize, come up with sound strategies. Okay, plan A, we do this. Plan B, if this happens, we do this. Then you go about putting the ingredients needed to successfully or with a high chance of success implementing this. Well, all these ingredients missing from the resistance group, including the well-intentioned great people, great people, they are their hearts are in the right place. But the methodology, the approach, the way is worse than, I don't want to say wild, wild west. Is there is no methodology. I can't even say it's bad because there is no methodology. I just got invitation, just to give you an example, one invite uh, on several people coming together and want to do something in Tampa, right? I had received that heads up before and I tried to talk with them and say, who are the organizers? What is the strategy? Where is the plan, blueprint of what you want to implement on this such and such a date, right? I couldn't get any answer. It's, it's the wishful thinking. Of we get, we're going to get 1 million people, whether it's in Fort Lauderdale or it's in Tampa. We're going to hold the signs and we're going to say no mask. I'm all for protests, okay? But number one, how are you going to get 1 million people? Are you going to have speakers? Is it going to require permit or not permit? How are we going to publicize this? Are we going to have countdown? Who are the top organizers? You know, the, nothing. There is nothing. It's just wishful thinking. We put it out. We want to gather 1 million people. Forget about 1 people, 1 million. Let's say even 100 people. Well, to implement such a thing, you've got to go through all the steps. Anyhow, this is why... In December, and I know exact date, December 23rd, two days before Christmas, in Collier County, Naples area here, we didn't have a county mask mandate because previously they had voted against it with a vote of four to three, four saying no mandates. Two days before Christmas, they announced an emergency unplanned meeting, okay, because one of the council members of the county commissioners, council members, was not, uh, had already left. So they took advantage of this. They took advantage of Christmas. Everybody's busy with buying gifts, getting ready, traveling, whatever they are doing for all the Christmas-related stuff. And they overturned it and they put a mask mandate. And this is December 23rd. Now, a few weeks before that, I was trying to get people saying, this is how we should go about countering these types of events. There it came, the, what we were anticipating, and there was no real opposition, there was no publicity, nothing. At that point, despite the life situations and circumstances, I said, you know what, I'm going to start a network of at least like-minded people who truly want to tackle these issues. And when I say mandated insanity, I'm not talking about only vaccination, passport. I'm not only referring to mask. I'm not only referring to forced distancing, social isolation. I usually refer to these things as forced muzzling, caging, and jabbing. Insane mandates, today is this. Two weeks from now, it's going to be on, let's say, our Second Amendment-related issue. So all these 
police state tactics that reeks with fascism, elements of fascism. You know, if you go and start studying fascism, okay, how it was implemented, what it was in its core, and then you look at what has been happening, let's say even in our country since 9-11, you see that the nucleus of it is the whole premise of fascism. And we were supposed to be uh, insulated, protected from these types of operations, whether it's by the federal government or those behind the federal government that are implementing via using our federal government through our constitution. Well, by neutering the states, you know, there is such a thing as 10th Amendment years ago, decades ago, half a century ago, the Great Depression that we had, we said, okay, this is catastrophic. We need to do things and federal government is in the best position to do this. So federal government says, we're going to resolve this with all the great deal and the Keynesian economics, etc. right? We put, our federal government put all these programs, costly programs in place and they expanded. Their size went from, let's say, five to 5,000 throughout this whole period. It was to remedy, right, and respond to deal with the Great Depression. Now, you fast forward this to the most affluent time in the U.S., none of those went away. That's one thing you will see with any government anywhere in the world, which we have been seeing with our federal government. There may be terrorism or COVID or some sort of other kind of a flu or, or financial catastrophic thing, or it may be a cyber warfare kind of a thing, right? I think During who, who was it? Uh, was it Friedman, Milton Friedman? Somebody said there's nothing so permanent as a temporary government program. That's exactly <laughs> that. That sums it up so well. Yeah. The same thing. All right. Remove your shoes. You can't carry your water there. That was 20 years ago almost. Did yeah. they take away any of those? Nope. It is here to stay. Looking at the history, looking at the, this uh, never-changing characteristic of our federal government, which is controlled by the handful of, you know, deep state billionaires, you and I should easily see the pattern and saying, this is what they're doing and look how much they have done. And to say that a lot of things they put in place, including in our Congress, in the name of COVID, in the name of terrorism, in the name of Red Scare, it's going to be here to stay. And we're going to be that much less constitutional as a nation. And that applies to all of us, whether you're a Democrat, whether you're a Republican, whether you're, it doesn't make any difference whether you're a woman or man, whether you're an elderly or a child. We are all victims. And this is one of the things that we really need to make people understand because some or many still don't. So it started as a network. I started a database. I wanted to be able to communicate and meet with like-minded people here in Florida. And by mid to end of January, it turned into, let's put a website together and another database and the social media channel, which they removed it. I was one of the people that Twitter eliminated during their first front of assault. I had about 50, 55,000 followers and here we are. And uh, 
it's now for me for not only Florida, we launched the national database, which is everywhere in the United States. Anybody who truly, truly values their constitutionally guaranteed rights in addition to their human human rights, because they are hand in hand. In some ways, they are not even separable. And to say, this is what we need to do. We need to do it together. We need to unite. It's not a partisan issue. It is right now for me, I know it is global, but I can't and I won't. I can't even afford doing that to, to take on the world. This is where I live. I'm starting from Florida, from my city, but with the goal of uniting us throughout the country because in the end, that's the only way we can defeat this. And I'm, by this, I don't mean flu, COVID, and the mask, and the caging, etc. Well, you've, you've already seen, they basically, they're saying the quiet p- parts out loud now. And so now they've already told us, you know, both with the CNN leak, and now they're, you know, you're seeing more and more to it, but they're, they're going to pivot next to climate change. I said this, I said this a year ago, it was so transparent, you know, I mean, once you know how these people operate, once you're kind of awake, red pilled, so to speak, it's so easy to predict these things. So I said, you know, I've said since, well, I won't say day one, but pretty early on, I said, this is that I said, all this COVID stuff, it's just the appetizer for the main meal. The main meal is climate change, because there's a lot of crossover there with the same quote, solutions for how you're going to solve climate change the same way you solve, you know, an invisible virus with a 99.8% survival rate. Sure. It's always the under the guise of fighting one catastrophe or another. And the fear tactic, which always works, manipulating people to believing in it and, and how it's being made possible is through the media. It is, when I said fascism, when you go and look at the, the in you know, the, the, entire doctrine of fascism they say the most and hitler said it in so many different ways the most important element to implement this is via propaganda thus the media and that's exactly what they have had and we had this hope 25 30 years ago that with the internet age we were going to be able to counter that and it was not going to be possible for them but guess what? Actually, it has made it worse because the, the level of misinformation or diversion or divisiveness yeah. is imploding because of what we see through this whole social media dynamics and including the censorship. And with that, to just say, you know, that the, the hardest part has been how do you unite? How do you unite? Because I can't imagine anyone seeing these facts, okay, not saying I'm on board as a human being, but also as an American, regardless of any kind of a crappy party-related influence, you know? And yet we are not still seeing it. A good example is this wonderful guy here in Naples. He has a chain of grocery stores. He has farms, uh, Alfie Oaks. Alfie Oaks, yep. He has been amazing because he stood up and he said, no, it is again, it's, the, it's in violation of HIPAA and it is in violation of our constitutional rights. We make masks optional as customers who enter my shops, all my shops. And he put it very nicely, eloquently. 
he has faced so many threats. He has faced so much retaliation. He has lost so much money. The Lee School District canceled their contract, worth millions of dollars with him to boycott him for his stand on the side of our human rights. At least he's fighting back against that. I mean, he's, he, you know, they're, they're, they're throwing everything at him, but at least he's not and taking it laying down. Nope. <laughs> nope, he's not. And so this is a genuine, a person who is not only talking the talk and he's walking it, right? Immense level of respect. Well, early March, end of February, he came out and he said, look, we need to unite businesses. We need to have more businesses so we can do it as, as, as a consortium of businesses, this. And I'm willing to even help you with your legal fees because I have put in place attorneys, right? Mm -hmm. That's a fantastic idea, right? So I started the segment under FOAMI and started going and recruiting myself in-person businesses who sign up. And I gathered 25 or so, 25, 30 businesses. I kept trying to go and say, okay, this is how, what are we doing now? And then that whole thing has been already scrapped. They're not doing it. It's just now they are on some other election band. Oh, yeah, the, the bold business owners for liberty. And so, yeah, it, it always pivots back it. to, you know, vote harder and elect the right people and yada, 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 yada. yada. Do this, Haley. See, you start people and then you jump onto something else. I'm already on board. I'm starting. And now suddenly I'm looking around. Nobody's standing with me. I'm the only one with you, with Fuami. We are trying to recruit businesses. Well, don't do that because, first of all, you end up facing this cry wolf tactics, meaning, you know, the, the whole phenomena of you say this, you make a big deal out of it, then you don't do anything about it, you go away. Then next time, nobody's going to take you serious. Don't do that. If you're going to say it, walk it through, carry it out. Right. Be persistent. Be consistent because we can. That's a very good approach. We need all these businesses, whether they are hair salons. I can't go to salons because they say, I'm going to keep my mask. I can't do that. Now, I want to be able to have a database. I want to be able to go sit behind my computer or use my iPhone and say, uh, optional mask hair salons, right? In Naples, Florida, or in Fort Myers, Florida, I want to be able to see, bam, 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 bam. The search results bring seven options of places that I can go that if I choose not to wear masks, which I'm going to choose, I don't wear masks. And if somebody who wants to do it, they are free to do it. Well, we need, to, we, we need we that this? database. I'd like it to, you know, with all this, the Black Lives Matter thing. I mean, I had friends on Facebook, you know, they're like, oh, do I know a Black-owned literary publisher? Do I know a Black-owned uh, hot sauce producer? I mean, all the ra all these random things, but they were literally going out of their way to try and find, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's great. I think we should all be free to do that. But we need to find our own. And that's one of the well, things that I've been trying database. to... We have no database of any kind or any sorts other than the Republican Party database mm -hmm. when they are asking for money. Yeah. And look how they have been betraying all, betraying all their constituents. The 85, 90% of them are as despicable and corrupt as the other size despicable corrupt people. Zero difference. Even within our own legislation here, the when we look at Florida, right? We have had Anthony Sabatini. He filed again in January, before he left the last session, November 2020, he filed his bill, HB 6003, I believe, right? 
against these types of mandatory vaccinations, etc. And he came out and he said, my Republican colleagues, majority of them, I'm saying easily 80, 90%, they are not supporting me. They are fighting me. They are fighting me, some of them harder than the left is fighting me, the Democrats, right? So look at, look at, look at our, here, our legislators here. How many percent of the so-called Republicans are out there representing people here, the red people here saying, we don't want mandated this and mandated mask and mandated caging and mandated jabbing. They are not. So yes, where are the database? This is what I have been trying to do. I know you and I together, you as an organizer for our chapter, and it's been amazing, you know, to have people like, you, like Linda, like uh, Ray, uh, joining for me. So it's no longer, you know, it's like me and running around saying, okay, how are we going to make this happen? Now there is, you know, four of us. I'm hoping that there will be 10 of us in two, three months from now. But there is hope. Uh, I know a lot of things I just said here may to some people sound like they reek of pessimism, you know, of negativity, but it's not. Because I, I, why would I do this? Despite the fact that my husband right now is under at home, in home hospice care. Okay. Well, we have and, no and, choice. Um, this is what I, I mean, no, of course I would much rather, I'd be, yeah, I'd, I'd much rather be doing like literally anything. Um, but it's either this, we either fight or you live under somebody's thumb and boot forever. I mean, make your choice, pick your heart. Pick your heart. That's what they say. I mean, yeah, losing weight is hard, but so is being uh, overweight and having to suffer all the health consequences from it. Pick your heart. So I'm picking the heart. I'm going to fight for freedom. I'm going to fight for what I know is right. And I know that at least standing by Sabelle Edmonds, I'm fighting with the right person. Because I, I think if I if I had one word to describe you, I would just say integrity. I, I don't know that I've ever met or come across anybody who has more integrity than you do and fighting for what's right and calling bullshit and always being on the right side of the issues, or at least, you know, in earnest, you know, trying to do as much as you can from what your perspective is, is the right thing and live in truth. And that's who I want to stand side by side with. That's why I contacted you to, um, you know, join up with, with Fuami and I'm, you know, I, I, I don't have, I mean, I'm, I won't say I'm a nobody. I've got some, influence maybe more than others, but, uh, you know, I'm trying, I'm putting myself out there and we have parallel interests with, you know, what I'm doing with Liberty Alliance Network and what you're doing with Fuami. And we're kind of, and you have energized me because, you know, it's very true because you know how it is. Like you're trying to do something. There are times I call it the up times and you're focused, you're doing it. Then you hit those snags and times or situations where make it makes you like saying, oh my God, is it futile? Am I going about this? I question myself all the time. Am I going about this all wrong? When I start getting a little bit of self-doubt, it's like maybe, maybe that's when let's say I get a text from you or you and I are chatting and then I find myself back on my feet again. I'm like, okay, I'm optimistic. First of all, because I know I'm not alone because we are doing it together you know and uh, and that that that's what i'm saying imagine if right now there were there were 10 of us right now there are four of us and and our members four, four the, chapter organizers we've got yeah. you've got thousands of members uh, yes we have now about 3000 members in florida 
we have over 1,000 uh, outside Florida because we just launched that with our database. And so those are all like positive and good. And I'm still looking for this thing that's going to make some light bulb bulbs and say, okay, what are the other ingredients? We had a great success now with we, this South Beach we did. Food and Wine Festival in Miami, right? Yeah. We had our governor come out there and issue this executive order like a week ago, 10 days ago. And he said, okay, I am prohibiting businesses requiring in Florida vaccination pass or for you to have to prove that you have had the test and you're COVID free. That is against human rights. That's against our constitution. Fantastic. I love the centers for these kinds of things. Now, I also had some doubts of this being effective. Why? Because the same thing he did with the mask. And he said, as a governor, I don't think this is right. And I'm not going to have the statewide mask mandates. By doing so, he left it up to the city commission, you know, the county commissioner, city council members. And that's how we got screwed. And there, he didn't do anything about that. So I said, okay, he says that, but is it going to be like the mask? Meaning people are going to defy it. Businesses are going to defy it. Colleges, universities are going to defy it. And he's going to say, well, okay, so I have a, they, they are defying it, but I'm not going to do anything to implement it. Well, actually, they tested him, at least with the South Beach Food and Wine Festival in Miami. They came out, they publicized the fact that they were going to require vaccine pass, proof of vaccination, or proof of the fact that you are COVID-free for anybody who wants to buy this 200 tickets and participate in it. In defiance of the governor, in direct defiance of this executive order, and you and I and our uh, FAMI members just started organizing this rally and protest to go there with our yellow badges and say, this is. But we also, I, every time I tweeted about this, I'm like, okay, what are you going to do about this, governor? Dear governor, here he is openly saying, the director of the festival, that he's going to defy your executive order. Well, they went into a meeting after we announced that we're going to have rallies. We publicize it. We put mm -hmm. all these chains on the Twitter. Sent out they email newsletters and everything. That's right. Yep. They came out of the meeting with DeSantis and they announced that they were going to scrap that. They were not, they are not going to require proof of vaccination or proof of being COVID free. You still have to wear that muzzle right. and have the distancing, et cetera. But even though it may sound small to some people, I think that's a great victory for Florida. Well, and that's I think that it, it provides a blueprint. I mean, I think I, I saw that and I was like, I know what we need to focus on. We need to shut this down everywhere yeah. we see it. Every, yes. we, can't, we can't let it get a toehold. We cannot let it, let it get a toehold because we can't let a precedent be set. We need to hit back hard everywhere we see uh, any business, anywhere uh, requiring any sort of proof of vaccination. We need to light up the phone lines. We need to flood the inboxes. We need to start, you know, make a presence. I mean, I just think, well, what would Antifa do? Or what would, what would BLM do? You know, right. for, they, they are out rioting in the streets for, you know, I won't say rioting, but, you know, you'll see them protest a business because they misgendered somebody or something. <laughs> I mean, it's like, okay, right. for whatever reason, that's a big deal to them. So when on things that actually matter, bodily autonomy and freedom of movement, et cetera, why aren't we more angry? Why aren't we doing the same things? These are things that actually matter. We need to hit back hard and, 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 and treat this like the, 
abomination that it is. Absolutely. And in fact, let's, I'm going to put that invitation from both of us from Fuomi and saying, I remember, if I remember it correctly, in addition to South Beach uh, Food and Wine Festival, there were a couple of colleges and or universities that they said they were going to require. Now that we are, we don't have to go and do that uh, rally protest there, let's make a list of these few institutions, whether they are private businesses or they are educational uh, academic uh, institutions such as colleges and universities. Let's make a list of those two, three that they said they are going to require that and let's go after them. We're not done. As you said, with each one of these, we have to do it. We I have mean, to. The cost of not doing it is so high. It's it too high. It's it's literally, I mean, I, I think you, you, of course, we're on the same page, but we you, your goal now is to make Florida a sanctuary state. And I yes. agree because I think Florida is going to be one of the last bastions of freedom on earth on earth, not just in the United States, but we might be the last stand for freedom on earth. And yes. we have to fight with everything we've got to keep Florida free, to, to carve out one place, one place of freedom on the planet where we can stand up, plant our flag and say, no, not here, not us. Absolutely. And so, you know, not only if we do, if we, when we do it, let me say, put it this way, because I'm going to fight this. I'm going to do everything I can for this. When we do this and set that example that is doable, first, we are going to be example to follow for several, many states in our country. Okay. Uh, first of all, it's constitutional to do that under the 10th Amendment. And second of all, I mean, somebody called me radical on Twitter when I said we need sanctuary states for constitution, meaning back to constitution, which is supposed to be the law of the land for our nation. I right? take that as a compliment if somebody and called me radical. And they say I'm being radical. Since when I'd being constitutional you. states being, being radical? Right. I mean, it's insane. But setting the example, you're going to see a domino effect. That's what I believe, and I believe it 100%. We're going to see other states following the suit. Immediately, North Dakota is going to do that. South Dakota is going to do that. You're going to see Alabama. You're going to see, we're going to have dozen or more of states following the suit because they see that it's doable. We'll be the first starting the domino effect, and that also will have effect around the globe. When people restore their fate in all in their own people's empowerment because it's been so long so long for such a long period of time people have been living and and accepting this powerless we are we have no power everything is being done to us we can't do anything mentality that learned helplessness that learned helplessness mentality and it's one example will go a long way erasing or eliminating this effect and have people start looking at themselves and say, we've got the power. We can do it, especially together. United, we can. Yeah. Courage is contagious. So be Absolutely. courageous. And, and I'm, I'm so proud to stand with such a courageous, brave woman like you, uh, Sabelle Edmonds, a uh, woman of many hats and many talents, but currently wearing the uh, director of Fuami 
That's F-U-A-M-I.org. And I'm so pleased that you were my first official guest on the What Can We Do uh, podcast uh, channel for Liberty Alliance Network. And um, stay tuned uh, for what we're going to be planning uh, in the upcoming weeks and months. And if you want to join, go to fuami.org, F-U-A-M-I. I'll have uh, information about Sabelle, including a link to her book, Classified Woman, on the show notes page on Liberty Alliance Network. Um, Sabelle, any parting words, anything you want to promote uh, before we end No, it? you wrapped it up perfectly, uh, Haley. Again, uh, I, I am I'm delighted to have you as a partner. And as I said, with Linda, Ray, our organizers, our members, Floridians, I love Florida. And I, I really want to leave it on this positive note uh, that I believe. You know, it's not for some sort of a special effect or trying to be corny. The fact that 100% I believe that together we can and united we certainly, certainly will win and set this example. So I tell your uh, listeners, our listeners, please join us. Please stand tall, chin up. There was a man, Lavoie Finnecum, who was assassinated in Oregon by our governor there, the governor of Oregon. And he has this famous quote. It's a one sentence. And he said something, he said, how can God stand by you if you're not standing, if you're on your knees? And I know there are some people who have told me, well, all they can hope for and do at this point is just pray. And I'm telling you, it's not only praying. If you want God to stand by you, stand up first so God can stand by you. I think that's a great way to put it. I also always say God helps those who help themselves. So uh, I'm, I, I, that's my kind of one of the themes of this podcast is nobody's coming to save you. You have to save yourself. So uh, I'm going to I'm going to fight and I'm going to take action and I'm going to do it with Sabelle and I'm going to do it with uh, everybody else who's uh, listening, hopefully. And uh, united we can. You're absolutely right. So, uh, Sabelle, thanks so much for joining me. And um, hopefully we'll we'll have you back on again soon. And um, okay. thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye bye.